0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, and then as you sit, why don't you grab a Bible and open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verses 15 through 20. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this. And also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise, more than ten rulers of the city, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You know, our our passage we just read this morning, you may have noticed that the preacher is really now beginning to go full circle. The only thing he's really brought up and taught that we're yet to consider is something he used as bookends on our conversation last week on materialism, and that's the topic of the fear of the Lord. And that becomes the conclusion, it's referred to as the conclusion of the whole matter. And so we'll get there briefly in two weeks to talk about the fear of the Lord. But everything from now on forward that he touches on and discusses from here to the conclusion of the book are really topics that we've already discussed or they are proverbs that he pens in light of realities that we've already worked through and discussed. So although I would encourage you to read through every word of the book of Ecclesiastes on your own in the next couple of weeks, we together as a church, as we wrap up our series in this book, we're going to spend the remainder of our time, just three more weeks, viewing it really more from 30,000 feet rather than jumping back in verse by verse through the weeds of what becomes this cyclical reminder of him doing what we do in life, where we realize that this is not the answer. And yet we find ourselves shortly thereafter trying again to extract from the thing, from materialism, what it cannot give to us, or from wisdom, what it cannot give to us, or from wealth, what it cannot give to us. We go through the same cycles again and again, and he seems to as well. So for today, what we're going to talk about is trying to make sense of life. For next week, we are going to discuss trying to make sense of death, and then for a final week in the series, we will discuss the fear of the Lord together, because that is the conclusion of the matter. So for today, just the discussion on trying to make sense of life. You know, as I mentioned, the preacher really goes full circle here, and it begins in his statement in verse 15 that Danny just read to us, where he says, I've seen it all in my days of my vain life. It kind of echoes back and takes your mind back, doesn't it, So, the way that he began at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 2, where the opening statement is, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. May I quickly remind you that vanity, in our modern vernacular, speaks of either a piece of furniture or an overfixation of self. And the Hebrew word that's used here, hevel, that our english bibles are attempting to translate speaks of neither of those two things either a piece of furniture or an overfixation on self nor is the word communicating that something is meaningless or futile as it is also often translated there are many modern scholars who are suggesting now that the word implies something not necessarily that's meaningless but something that is substanceless that it's an unfathomable mystery that cannot be grasped or understood The word hevel, you remember, is quite literally the word for a puff of smoke, as if you struck a match and watched the smoke go up for a moment, and then it's gone in the next. And as we've seen, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's masterfully utilized nuance and some eloquent wordsmithing to use this word hevel, not just to express that something's temporary, like a shallow breath, as some translate it. He will, in other moments, he used it to express something that could not be grasped or comprehended, like a puff of smoke that it's there, but which, you, when you reach out to grab it, it passes right through your fingers. It can't be grasped or held. You see, the intentional use and the overuse of this word hevel, it is the preacher's way of communicating that life is enigmatic, that it's shrouded in mystery. He's telling you that life is a paradox. And here's the paradox that our preacher has worked hard to express to us. Please listen. It's that your life is lived under the sun, but the meaning and purpose of life cannot be found under the sun. The paradox that he has preached so hard, worked so diligently to make clear to us, is that your life is lived under the sun, but that the meaning and purpose for life cannot be found under the sun. I mean, consider with me, if I placed a piece of paper before you today with the two simple words, life is, and then a blank space next to it, how would you fill in the blank? Life is, maybe someone might write beautiful, with its gift and joys and pleasures. And the voice of Ecclesiastes echoes to us from chapter 3, verse 11, reminding us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He too would say, yes, life is beautiful. But for others, they'd write, life is painful. We struggle through life's sorrows and pains only to discover what one of you often tells me that getting old isn't for sissies. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, the preacher ponders the painful reality that he struggled all his life, but in his old age, he's looking back and realizing that it didn't amount to much, nor did it change or better society. In fact, he's heartbroken as he realized that he couldn't even enjoy it, all that he'd worked so hard to earn. He said it this way. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart over to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who's toiled and worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who didn't even work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. He he concludes by describing all that he had worked to accomplish as him realizing it was just chasing after the wind. Life is beautiful. Life is painful. Life is surprising. With us doing our best to have a plan and control the outcome only to find that we're not in control of anything. As the wise sage from maybe a generation ago, Forrest Gump would say, "Life is like a box of chocolates because you never know what you're going to get." Or in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse 11, the preacher says this way. He says, "Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift." nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance, he says, happen to them all. It's surprising. For many of us, we're realizing that life is short. For Lindsay and I, we're celebrating a couple of birthdays at our house of our kids over these couple of weeks stretch And it's been wild to consider that we celebrated Riley's 11th and Keegan's 9th birthday, and it feels in some ways like just yesterday we brought home newborns. And yet a decade has passed. And it seems like the longer I'm alive, the faster this locomotive, this train called time, seems to move. It picks up steam as it goes. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, he says it this way, For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he sees pass like a shadow. The idea is here in an instant, gone in the next. Life is, well, in the end, I guess when you add all of these things together, you'd have to say that life is complex. Where nothing seems certain as everything is constantly changing, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows And it's over, all of it's over before we'd ever have thought or imagined. It's what we saw him write in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where he reminds us of the various seasons and experiences in our lives that leave our life all so very complex where he says for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. How would you describe life? Life is fill in your blank. For so many of us, we'd agree with what the writer of Ecclesiastes has told us, that it's beautiful, and yet it's painful, and it's surprising, and gosh, it's short. And in the end, all of that together just shows us just how very complex. Life is complex. That's what it is. You see, I recently read the prolific Russian thinker and writer Leo Tolstoy's beautiful little book entitled A Confession. You see, for Tolstoy, he was hit by a profound, depressing midlife crisis that left him suicidal after achieving fame and fortune as he really became a household name around much of the developed world. The question that haunted him, causing him to fall into this deep pit of despair was him asking the question, the unavoidable question in his mind that all of humanity is faced with, and that's this question of what is the point of my life? What does it all accomplish? And does it all even matter? His relenting search for an answer and for some peace left him so depressed and empty that he finds himself hiding every rope and weapon from his reach because he was so driven to end his life because he found no answer for it. This is what he penned. He wrote, the truth was that life is meaningless. I had, as it were, lived and walked till I'd come to a precipice and saw clearly that there was nothing ahead of me but destruction. It was impossible to stop impossible to go back, and impossible to close my eyes or avoid seeing that there was nothing ahead but suffering and real death and complete annihilation. Tolstoy, in a very Ecclesiastes-like statement, he said this. He said, it is no good deceiving oneself. It is all vanity. Happy is he who has not been born. Death is better than life, and one must free oneself from life. In his book, A Confession, he answers the question, life is fill in the blank. He answers it by saying, life is, and I quote, a stupid joke played upon us all. His wisdom and success and pleasures and parties couldn't lift him from his pit of, a dis- of his despair any more than we found that they can for us, any more than the preacher in Ecclesiastes found that they did for him. But at the end of his search under the sun, he, like the preacher of Ecclesiastes, found nothing that could give purpose or meaning for his life. However, unlike the preacher of Ecclesiastes, Tolstoy then looked above the sun and found hope and meaning and purpose in life. Writing of his faith, he said this, he said, I could not but admit that it alone gives mankind a reply to the questions of life. And that consequently, it makes my life possible again. He continued to explain what he discovered in his faith in Jesus, saying, Every such answer gives to the finite existence of man an infinite meaning. A meaning not destroyed by sufferings, deprivations, or death. This means that only in faith can we find for life a meaning and possibility. My friends, what he found is I believe what we find if we simply look around our room together this morning. He said he found people who are without all that we think will make life good and worth living, and yet they, and I quote, knew the meaning of life and death. They labored quietly, endured deprivations and sufferings, and lived and died, seeing therein not vanity, but it was good. He said in Christ what he found was that everything was no longer vanity. He found even in the hard moments that there was something good there. And isn't this what we find when we even look around here? Like when we look around our own room in our gathering this morning, we may not possess everything that that the world tells us, that you need this if you're going to live the good life. And yet, for so many of us, we report back that life is good and has purpose and meaning and value because we have something that cannot be earned or purchased or inherited. We have something that could only be received as the precious free gift given from heaven to us, given from above the sun in the form of a sun. We have Jesus. And so what we found is that everything is not vanity. We found that there's something good in everything. It's C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, that said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made, made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why It is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. As the second and greater preacher from the line of David, Jesus arrived and said, He said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Listen to the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes as he begins his long recap and wrap-up to his search for the good life. He says again in verse 15, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. But don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time?" He's been telling us that he's looking for a system hack, which the truth is, that's what we're all looking for, too. We're looking for a way to beat the system and guarantee the outcome and experience out of life that we so desire. And he's saying here that righteousness didn't guarantee the outcome he was after. And the outcome he's after is a good and easy life. Wisdom couldn't provide sufficient answers to his questions and quandary. And so it, too, left him wanting But throwing in the towel on a pure life or wise living didn't help anything at all. In fact, he's saying that it will destroy your life if you choose to to live recklessly and wild like a fool. He says in verse 18, it's good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. He's saying, don't let go of wisdom and purity and yet don't hold them so tightly as if they guarantee you access to the ease of life that you desire. For he who fears God will escape them all. He who's mindful of God and puts him in his proper place in their life, he's saying will avoid the extremes of, of bailing on wisdom and righteousness, and on the other hand, depending on your wisdom and righteousness as the key to the life that you want. Now, if this is true, let's just be practical for a moment. If this is true, then allow it to be helpful and freeing to you today. Because he says here, don't wipe yourself out trying to be overly righteous. Always concerned if you're on board, maybe the practical nature of this is is to always be concerned about whether or not we're on board with the latest boycott or up to date on the latest book that your family needs to be leery of or if you have pre-purchased tickets to the most recent Kirk Cameron film or any number of other things that you're worried about. What's the right thing to do and the righteous way to live? Many years ago as a, as a young person, I might have been 18, maybe even younger than that, but I was, uh, had a car full of friends, uh, with me as we were driving out to go snowboarding. It was late at night. We had snowboarded all day. We're driving back from the mountains and my car was was quickly headed towards an E. Uh, I was running out of gasoline, and so I pulled off the freeway and pulled over towards a gas station when I heard from the back row of the 1989 Ford Tourist station wagon. It was a boat of a car. I heard someone in the back row, the oldest of the guys in our group, a guy in his early 20s, he chimed in as I stopped at that gas station and said, are you actually going to stop and get gas from that place? And for me, I had no idea what he was insinuating and said, well, I was sure planning on it. And he said, but you wouldn't really support the kinds of things that they're doing with their money, would you? And I, because I hadn't even put it in park, I said, absolutely not. Wouldn't do that. And so I drove across the street to this other gas station. And as I pulled across the street, he said, seriously, you're going to give your money to them? And I said, listen, pal, you you either are going to preserve your conscience today or you're going to get home. Which one is it? Because we need gas. And I'll tell you, I've met a lot of people over the years who kind of lived their life a lot like that. And I'm not insinu- insinuating that we shouldn't care about the environment or the ethics of the businesses we frequent. But I think the preacher's words ring true, though, not to be overly righteous. Because if you start down the path in order to find moral high ground to stand on, you'll find that it is an endless journey. I have one friend who boycotts all of Apple's products because they support organizations he disagrees with. But for me, I question him, do you really think that your PC and Android devices don't support something else that you disagree with? Or is it just that they did not openly broadcast and advertise it somewhere that you saw it and you don't want to dig and find answers to those questions because then you're without a phone. Target's currently on the naughty list for a lot of people, and it's been in the headlines, and for good reason. But is shopping on Amazon really a lesser of two evils when they also sell infant onesies with the same captions and when they're crushing small business owners across the country? Maybe you won't buy gas from that specific company, but that other gas company, are they really less destructive to the environment than the ones that you're buying from? And are we certain if we just say, well, then forget gasoline altogether, are we certain that electric vehicle's battery disposal is less destructive Than the product and the production of oil and gasoline and its transportation via pipelines. And we haven't even mentioned the reported forced child labor taking place in the Congo to extract precious cobalt from unsafe mines that are needed for those batteries in the car that you're now driving to save your conscience from feeling bad about the oil and the gasoline. Hear me, please. It's important that we do not compound injustice and oppression in our sin-splintered, broken world, but I think we also need to remember that we live in a sin-splintered, broken world and are surrounded by injustice. The words of the preaching king ring true that we ought not to become overly righteous because it's impossible, or excuse me, because it's possible that the only thing you will actually accomplish is that you will exhaust and starve yourself on your endless climb towards the moral high ground. Hear me please, we all ought to have convictions and a line, and that line might look different for all of us, and we all ought to care about systems of injustice and those that they suppress. I'm not at all arguing against that. I'm observing, though, what the preacher highlighted for us, that you can exhaust yourself and weary your soul with the weight of the world's injustice when every grain of rice you lift off your plate confronts you with another moral conundrum. You see, if the preacher's words are true, then allow it to be helpful and freeing for you today that you shouldn't wipe yourself out trying to be overly righteous nor trying to be overly wise. Isn't it interesting that our New Testament mandate that Jesus gave his followers was not to know everything, nor was it even to have an answer for everything and everyone. It was for us to love every person. It's so funny to me because the truth is for so many of us who wisdom appeals to us, what we lean into is wanting to know everything and have an answer for everyone and everything, but we find ourselves often ostracized from other people. I mean, how much of the church is known for its arrogance and its ability to have an argument and a response and stance for every issue in the community, country, and world beyond us, all somehow void of the presence of genuine love for others? How many of us might have our neighbors, our coworkers, even our own family members describe us precisely in that same manner? Oh, he, oh, she has an answer and an argument for everything and no love or compassion for anyone. You see, if the preacher's words are true, then allow them to be helpful and freeing for you today that you shouldn't wipe yourself out trying to be overly righteous nor overly wise. Let me summarize it simply. He's see, and remember that for many who read the Proverbs, they assume that a, that a foolproof plan to get what you want out of life works because A plus B always equal c until it doesn't and sometimes you make wise choices, you even live with integrity, and things still don't work out for you. Life is still hard and painful and out of your control. Oh, be wise, but don't trust your wisdom, he's saying, to be the key to making everything good and right and easy. Oh, be righteous, and yes, have a, have a high level of moral integrity, but don't just trust your own righteousness as the key to everything working out fine and dandy in your life. Oh, if you fear God, you're going to avoid being overly wicked, for sure, and avoid placing too much of your hope and focus on your own righteousness. Yes, be a person of moral integrity. However, don't assume that your integrity is something that the universe has to yield to or that God is subservient to. Where you think as if God is this cosmic vending machine, that your good deeds and righteousness were your integrity... You doing the right thing is like placing coins inside the machine, and now God is required to give you whatever buttons you push or whatever things you pray for. Or as he says in chapter 9, For I consider, chapter 9, verse 1, all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and wise in their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. He's saying that none of us are exempt from hardship and tragedy. That's what he observed, and we observe it too. He's not telling you, though, give up and throw on the towel and just He's just stating the obvious here regarding the human existence and experience that you can't hide or isolate yourself from its difficulty and its pains, and you can't beat the system with your own righteousness or your own wisdom. But look again at chapter 7 and verse 29, where he tells you one thing he's found that is true. He's discovered something he believes it to be true, and that's that God made men upright, honest and honorable, but mankind has rebelled and gone their own way. Our preacher and guide is affirming in his life experience what the scripture report is true, that God made a good world. And that mankind has rebelled and ruined it. And in the end, we're not only to blame for it, we suffer because of it. We suffer in a sin-splintered, broken world is what he's telling you. But is there any hope beyond the hope of Ecclesiastes? Because he's leaving us in a pretty bleak and helpless spot here. He's just observing all that's negative and broken and outside of our control. And thankfully, the preaching king from the line of David that's recorded for us in Ecclesiastes is not the final, much less the exclusive voice, the only voice on life under the sun. Jesus, the second, the greater preacher, preaching king from the line of David, speaks to these very things as the greater and the final voice of wisdom. So here's how I want to conclude our gathering today. I want to talk to you about what Jesus arrived teaching us. Because he arrived teaching us that we are to live our life knowing with certainty that there is more to life than what's under the sun. He, he arrived teaching us that we are to live our life knowing a second thing, knowing with certainty that everything matters, not that everything is meaningless and purposeless, that it's evil. But a third thing is that we are to live our life, he gave us instruction, loving God and loving people. You see, the first thing, Jesus, the greater preaching king from the Lion of David, left us clear that you and I are to live your life, our lives, knowing with certainty that there's more than life under the sun. Remember, our journey today is to try to make sense of life. And Jesus does so much for us in helping us to make sense of life. Remember the voice of Ecclesiastes, he's assuming that all that there is is all that's seen that there's nothing beyond what's visible to your eye, he refers to that mentality as life under the sun. It's his way of describing a life that's lived as as if there's nothing beyond it, nothing above the sun. As one author said, the preacher adopts the perspective of the secularist, not necessarily denying God's existence, but trying to make sense of a life as though God were optional. And the preacher's journey he's taken us on, through his life experience, a life that was lived seemingly without restraint and seemingly without a thought for eternity, this is also what he believes his audience to be. He believes that this is who he's addressing, not people who don't necessarily believe in God. It's people who live life without thinking that he's really all that important, though, which describes modern man very, very well. But Jesus' voice is heard in the middle of that saying, That you should live your life knowing with certainty that there's more than life under the sun. You see, this book and the voice of the preacher has shown us the brokenness of life under the sun. Not just the brokenness of creation, but how destructive the paradigm and belief that this is all there is. That all that is is all that I can see. He's shown us just how destructive that mentality is. And hindsight is 2020 for us as we have the gift of time and perspective that can look back and see with clarity the second, the greater preacher from the line of David. We have Jesus in our view who would not just enter the broken world and experience all that we gasp from and all that we cannot grasp, leaving us confident that he understands us and can help us. He would also go to a cross and rise from the grave to prove that life under the sun is not all that there is that there's life above and beyond the sun. Remember in Ecclesiastes 3 where the preacher observes that we aren't any different from the chaos of the animal kingdom when we think of ourselves as being ordered and civilized. But he says, but look at those in power and how they abuse it. They're like apex predators devouring the weak. And then he observes, and all of us will die and decompose as the carcass of the animal on the hillside does. And then he asks, How can we know that the human existence and experience continues after one's death and decay? Again, quoting from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this time in verse 21, the preacher says it this way. He says, for who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the animal spirit goes down into the earth? He's saying, how do we know with any certainty that there's life above the sun, that the human spirit goes up above what's seen, beyond, exists beyond what's seen? But Jesus, the future preaching king from the line of David, will arrive and answer Kohel's question. Rising from the dead, becoming our living hope. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, it proves that there is life above and beyond the sun. You see, Jesus, the greater preacher, he comes telling you that life is to be lived, knowing with certainty that there is more than just life under the sun. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he seems to have a confidence that's constantly up and down and in flux regarding even the engagement of God in the affairs of men. Again, chapter 9, this time in verse 11, he says, I return and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. But the rest of scripture is clear. That things, yes, are out of our control, but not out of God's control. Chaos is not at the helm of our lives, which is something that the preacher seems in moments to be less than certain of, of God's care for us and his sovereign hand over us. You see, the scriptures are clear, not only that God is sovereign, it clearly tells us that he will faithfully exercise his sovereignty by making all things work together for good, by promising to faithfully, consistently bring beauty from ashes. You see, one of the reasons that life is so hard is because we have an enemy that hates us and wants to destroy us. Another reason that life is so hard, is because we live in a broken society that's marred by sin, that we are sinful and we are surrounded by sinful men and women around us. But another reason still that life is so hard is is that when God removed man from the garden at the beginning of the book, when God did that, God cursed the earth so that labor, our labor, would be difficult and that our lives would now include pain. And God did that not out of spite, He did that as an expression of grace. It was a means and expression of grace because without life's hardships, we'd never look beyond or above this life for an answer. Remember, please, that man's removal from paradise with God, it was initiated by God. Yes, it was the result of sin entering God's good world, but it was God that removed them from the Garden of Eden so that man would not partake of the tree of life in his sinful fallen state, sealing his eternal state as separated from God. But at the same time, God cursed the earth so that humanity would remember its need for God. Without the curse, humanity in its fallen state left to dwell in paradise would never see their deep need for a savior. You see, the harshness of life in a sin-splintered broken system is, yes, the byproduct of the fall and of man's rebellion And it also is a tool that God uses to cause men to look heavenward again, where they can find forgiveness and grace and hope and redemption and restoration. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, We could ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers it to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, without the curse and the suffering and futility it confronts us with, we'd never face the dissatisfaction under the sun that leads us to find a way of life with him who is above and beyond the sun. In chapter 7, verse 29, he said, Truly this only I have found. This is all he says I'm really clear on, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. But the gospel of Jesus adds another line to that story, doesn't it? Another thing that you can be clear and certain of, and that's that, yes, God made man upright, and yes, man rebelled and sought out many schemes, but God sought out man. That's what we're sure of, to rescue, redeem, and restore them. And we're sure of that because the preaching king didn't just come say it, he embodied it. You see, God didn't give us an answer to our quandary from heaven. He gave us himself. Oh, the irony of human existence. That when we have no real deep experience of pain or sorrow in life to measure even our pleasures against, we default to measuring our joy against the perceived prosperity of other people around us and it leaves us empty and miserable to our own demise. You see, this is the byproduct of American idealism, of a life lived trying to insulate itself from suffering sorrow or lack in any form, and yet the preacher continues to push us to engage with sorrow and brokenness in our world because it's a tool that God uses to cause us to look heavenward and even to taste of the pleasures and joys that are still found in a broken world. we're talking about trying to make sense of life, and the first thing that Jesus makes so very clear is that you should live your life with certainty knowing that there's more than life under the sun. But a second thing, that you should live your life with certainty knowing that everything matters. It's not all meaningless. It's not all hevel after all. You might remember he begins this passage where we're walking through today, by reaching back to the beginning of the book. His statement is, I've seen it all in my the days of my vain life. That reminds us of what he says as he begins the book, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all of it is vanity. This is the mantra of our human spokesman, that all of this is empty and unable to be grasped or understood. And he's right in an under the sun line of thinking, none of this makes sense or matters at all that's when we're reminded that there was a second greater preaching king from the line of David. And the gospel of Jesus would preach, and the Christian narrative and worldview would present for us, tell us that everything matters. And we found that it does not request or require the kind of intellectual inconsistency that an under the sun form of thinking or form of wisdom is requesting from us. Let me remind you of something we discussed as we walked through the preacher's message very early in our series. Think this through again. Think through our cultural obsession with self-esteem. And just remember how intellectually inconsistent it is. In an under-the-sun mentality and worldview... If your origin is insignificant, where there's no God and no creative intent, just random chance, and if your destiny in the future is, is without significance, there's no reckoning day, no reward, no life, no nothing, then why in the world are we so concerned about people feeling good about themselves and viewing their life as significant when we're telling them that their origin was insignificant and their future lacks any significance? The same culture that's telling you how important you are is also teaching you that you're not valuable or important at all because you're the result of accidental random chance. You're just a massive lump of cells. There's no rational reason to say that you're more valuable than a rodent or a rock around you. The intellectual inconsistency is that you have to live as if human beings are significant, when in reality, according to life and wisdom under the sun, that narrative and worldview, you know that they're not at all. You have to live as if human beings are significant when knowing that they're not. But as a 21st century progressive society, our hearts won't allow us to live lives the way our minds tell us we ought to live. Because to live that way, discarding the weak, and to allow for societal progress to take place, we discard the weak so that the the stronger go and build on top of their heads and their lives, it feels unhuman. We'd call it inhumane. Our hearts betray us and betray the narrative we're pressured to to believe. Do you understand that either nothing matters at all in your life, a life lived under the sun, or absolutely everything matters? But in an under-the-sun form of wisdom, you can take this moment right now, you seated here today, and zoom all the way out to each decision you'll make in life to each person that you'll seemingly impact, to how much wealth you acquire or even how much wealth you give away. Maybe even to see how many future generations feel your life and the impact of your life and are better for it. We can zoom all the way out to that and none of it matters because your origin was inconsequential and your future in eternity is inconsequential because this is all that there is and therefore your life is of no consequence or significance because you're merely straightening deck furniture on a sinking Titanic. It might look pretty as it's going down, but it's going down and there's no point. And under the sun form of wisdom, you cannot provide answers for life's biggest questions and you're required to live your life with an intellectual inconsistent way knowing that there's no point or purpose to life, but choosing to live live as if there were. Do you understand either nothing matters in life under the sun, or there's life above and beyond the sun and everything matters? You see, the Christian narrative and worldview never requests or requires this kind of intellectual inconsistency to exist in your life. Because contrary to the culture, the Bible does not tell you that you've arrived here as a result of randomness and chaos with no grand purpose or intent behind your existence, with no global or moral standards or expectations about how we should steward our life or our resources. The Bible instead tells you that God expressed his value system within creation when he uniquely creates one entity in creation in his own image, mankind. And as an image-bearer, you have unique and special value above all other created things, like a child that bears the name and resemblance of their parents and are cherished by them. You bear the image of God, and he loves you not for what you do. You are valuable to him because of whose and what you are. You are image-bearers. You see, the identity of being an intrinsically valuable image-bearer must be the way that we see ourselves and the way that we come to see everyone else around us. See, some theologians, they refer to the image of God as being reflections of God, that we get to have little glimpses of the goodness and grace and love and beauty of God when we look into each other's eyes. You are the image of God walking the earth as if God is casting his shadow on the earth as you live and interact with other people. And let the world see what your God looks like, what your God acts like. The kind of compassion and love and grace your God has and has shown you. Do you understand that it's either that nothing matters at all or everything matters? In an under the sun form of wisdom, if this is all that there is, then you can take this moment right now of you seated here, zoom all the way out and none of it matters. Or if there is more than what is seen and more above the sun, then you can zoom all the way into as simple a thing as you engaging with your coworker's life tomorrow. You loving your neighbor well this afternoon. You even offering someone something as simple as a glass of water, and it all matters for all of eternity. Jesus said it this way, the greater and pre- greater preaching king. In Matthew 10, he says, And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, my followers, you shall surely be rewarded. You see, Kohelis' wisdom of under the sun living, it leaves us with the With the realization that nothing matters at all, but Jesus comes and tells you and proves you there is much more than what's under the sun. There is, in fact, life above and beyond the sun, which means that everything matters for all of eternity. We're wrapping up our thoughts about trying to make sense of life, and there's a third and final thing. In light of this, then live your life. This is what Jesus teaches us live your life loving God and loving other people. And I'll do this very quickly. But what we've heard the preacher say more than once with slight variations, he says again in chapter 9, verse 9, and it hits like a gut punch where he says, well, this is what I guess you should do. Enjoy all the useless days of this useless life God has given you on the earth because it's all that you have. So enjoy the work you have here on the earth. Or in other places, he says, so enjoy the food and the wine you have. In other places, he says, so enjoy the wealth and the resources you have, or enjoy the wife of your youth that you've been given. Remember that either nothing matters at all or absolutely everything matters. And because everything matters, Jesus gives very different instruction for life than just throw your hands in the air and say, I guess I'll enjoy what's mine. Jesus instead says that you should live your life loving God and loving people, using what's been entrusted to you as a steward to love them. You remember Jesus was asked, what is the first? It's the first in importance. What's the greatest commandment of all? There's a scribe that approached Jesus that day to ask him about the greatest commandment. He's really asking Jesus, can you sum it all up, all of the Torah? He's asking Jesus to explain what's the point of God's revealed spoken word. The question being asked is really, what's the core message? What's the center? What really matters? What's the most important thing? What's the book all about? What's God really after? What does God want from me? What's the point, the meaning of it all? Is there an essence to the message? It's the question he's asking. What is the essence of Christianity? If you boil it down to its simple core value and meaning and substance, what's the one thing that if it were removed, the whole of it would cease to exist? The essence of Christianity, Jesus says, that if it was removed, the whole of it would topple that it couldn't exist without it. Jesus said, was not love, or he says, (laughs) excuse me, he says, was not wisdom or righteousness. What did he say? He says, it was love. They came asking, what's the greatest commandment, the biggest, the most important thing, the essence of it all? What's God after? And he boiled it all down to love, love in response to God and his love for you, and love that is directed then, yes, to God, but to others also. Just as love for God is more than an emotional experience and connection because he says you should love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your thinking, your emotion, your energy, and your effort, your life. That love for my neighbor is much more than just an emotional tolerance or even emotional appreciation of them. It's love that physically gives to them, to my neighbors, to give to them what's grown or produced or purchased in my home. It's, an, it's a passionate, soul-filled drive to protect the life and even the dignity of those who are disrespected or disregarded. In Jesus' day, the poor and, and the deaf and the blind and the widows. In our day, maybe it's the Russians who are demonized right now or the Ukrainians who are discarded right now or the widow who's on food stamps in your life right now. It's loving them with my mind and my heart when I choose to forgive them for how they've wronged me and harmed me, even my reputation or harmed my career path or my emotional well-being, that I'm still engaging with love. But then the question is, well, who's the them? Who is it that I'm supposed to love like this? And you remember someone once asked Jesus that very question. It happens in Luke's Gospel where someone comes and asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy responds and says, well, who's my neighbor? I mean, who do I really have to love that way? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus said, whoever's in the same economic status as you, that level and layer, because they live on the same cul-de-sac as you, they're the most similar to you because they live there, try with them. Even they are hard. Jesus blows that apart because it wasn't whoever is a neighbor to me first, or whoever is neighborly to me, or whoever loves me first, or whoever I share things in common with. The answer was everyone, even those who haven't loved you, even those who have nothing in common with you, even those who'd be classified as your enemies. Because you remember the story that he told. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Jews and the Samaritans were were arch enemies. They hated one another, not just uh, for for physical reasons, because there were wars and squabbles that were breaking out between them, but also for deep spiritual reasons, where they thought they were these half-bred rejects of God. And so they had moral and ethical reasons why they were better and different than them. But they also had physical angst against them because of some of the issues that have played out before them. And yet, you remember in the story, the shocking thing is that the two that passed the man by, the Jew who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead, were a Levite and a priest. The people who spent the most time in church showed the littlest interest for the person with the greatest need. But then came a Samaritan. They would have gasped. I'd argue I think it's a real story, because if it was just a fable or a parable, people would have laughed and said, whatever, Jesus, that would never happen. You know, of all the people in the world, Christians should be the most caring people because we are the most cared for people. And we ought to be willing to love even our enemies, those who are least like us. You see, you cannot say you love God unless you are also willing to love your neighbor as yourself. And I would argue that you will find that you are unable to effectively love your neighbor as yourself unless you are consistently experiencing the transforming power of God's grace, his unmerited self-sacrificial love for you. It's not an either-or. Love God or love people. It is a both-and. I need to love God and love my neighbor. I cannot love my neighbor unless I'm first receiving the beautiful love of God for me. You know, it's pretty amazing that he would never ask, though, Jesus would, anything of us that he hasn't already done for us. He loved us when we were in rebellion against him. He loved us and gave himself For us, while we were still sinners at enmity with God, Jesus, like the rich young ruler we agreed last week, had much to give up. For the rich young ruler, he decided not to give up what he had as wealth and power. Jesus, however, decided to give everything up, the glories of heaven, his authority, his power, his everything, even his Father. Jesus only requested that I give up my rights and what I'm entitled to after he first gave up his rights and all that he was entitled to even when we didn't deserve it. And we undoubtedly will have to love others who don't deserve it and who won't earn it either. But we will only do that as we receive the kind of transforming, powerful love that God has first given to us. If we're trying to make sense of life, I think it's so important that we hear the greater preacher from the line of David. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And he tells you that your life should be lived knowing with certainty that there's more than life that's under the sun. There's life beyond it. He's telling you to live with certainty knowing that everything in your life matters. It's not all empty and worthless. And to live your life with the love of God permeating it so much as you receive it that you find yourself loving God and loving people self-sacrificially. Oh, live your life loving God and loving people, which we it begins and ends with your life, your confidence, and a loving God giving himself for you. As you receive that, that love begins to transform you. So Jesus, I'm so thankful that you make it so very clear that our life is so different than maybe we thought it was that it's not just lived under the sun, that it's not so empty and meaningless. God, for some of us, this time in Ecclesiastes over the last couple of months has felt depressing. For others, they found a faithful friend to sit with them in their pain. But God, for all of us, we've seen the beauty of the gospel shine bright against a bleak backdrop. We look at brokenness in our world, and Jesus, it causes us to look your direction in awe and wonder that you have rescued us. And given us more than just a paradigm, a new paradigm for life. You've given us yourself. You've given us life. You said life abundant. Quality of life we could have never found anywhere else. So Jesus, today we choose to look your direction and to give thanks for what you've given. To give thanks that we've found in you hope. we found in you a life worth living. God, I pray for anybody who's here who's yet to encounter you personally, Jesus, to receive you, to choose to trust you, that they'd look away from a mentality of just life under the sun, assuming that this is all that there is. And today, Jesus, they by faith would declare that they believe that you are there. There's more to life than what's seen. That you're not only there, but you came here. And you came here to give your life as a ransom for many. You took the place of the rebellious one under the judgment of God so that we could now be seated in the place of the Son of God, at the table and family of God. God, I pray that they today would open their hearts and their minds to you to receive, Jesus, what you have given to us. You've given yourself. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.